Chapter 5. I Am What I Am. Bill McCheesney was an American missionary, killed at age 28 in the Congo uprising of 1964. Before he went to the Congo, he wrote the following poem. My Choice. I want my breakfast served at eight, with ham and eggs upon the plate. A well-broiled steak I'll eat at one, and dine again when day is done. I want an ultra-modern home, and in each room a telephone. Soft carpets, too, upon the floors, and pretty drapes to grace the doors. A cozy place of lovely things, like easy chairs with inner springs. And then I'll get a small TV. Of course, I'm careful what I see. I want my wardrobe, too, to be of nicest, finest quality. With layest style in suit and vest, why shouldn't Christians have the best? But then the master I can hear, in no uncertain voice so clear. I bid you come and follow me, the lowly man of Galilee. Birds of the air have made their nests, and foxes in their holes find rest. But I can offer you no bed. No place have I to lay my head. In shame I hung my head and cried, How could I spurn the crucified? Could I forget the way he went, The sleepless nights in prayer he spent? For forty days without a bite, Alone he fasted day and night. Despised, rejected, on he went, And did not stop till veil he rent. A man of sorrows and of grief, No earthly friend to bring relief, Smitten of God, the prophet said, Mocked, beaten, bruised, his blood ran red. If he be God and died for me, No sacrifice too great can be. For me, a mortal man, to make, I'll do it all for Jesus' sake. Yes, I will tread the path he trod, No other way will please my God. So henceforth this is my choice shall be, My choice for all eternity. You were born to your parents, raised in a neighborhood, brought up to believe certain beliefs, and to salute one flag. You heard stories of your past and your country. Your mom fixed food in a particular way, and those dishes will probably remain among your favorite foods to this day. Whether you are an American, a Filipino, or a Swiss, whether you grew up in New York or New Delhi, these things are part of what makes you you. When you need something to wear, you go out and buy what you like. That will likely be influenced by the way others you admire dress themselves. If you live in the West, it would be an outfit like you've seen everyone else wearing on television. If you live in a Malaysian village, it would be a certain way to tie a hand-dyed a hand-dyed sarong. Whatever it is, you are happier and you feel you are at your best dressed a certain way, eating a certain food, living in a certain kind of house, and raising your children to do the important things that are important to you. Even where you go to church is special, geared to your background, your choices, your likes and dislikes, and your experiences. You may like a plain building for worship with happy informal singing and preaching that makes you want to cry. Or... You might like stained glass windows and a soaring pipe organ. Your minister may emphasize God's control over everything and God's sovereignty is an idea that comforts you. Or, you may prefer to hear about the free will of man and your own responsibility to get right with God. There are all parts of your culture, your heritage, your denomination, your family, and your upbringing. You have the right to your American culture, or Australian, or Brazilian, or Russian. 
You have the right to enjoy your culture and love your country. You have the right to belong to a certain church and to other groups that express what you believe is important. You have a right to live, talk, eat, and dress in a way that is comfortable to you and to those around you. But, if everyone exercises these rights to the exclusion of God's plans for us and our lives, a tragedy of catalysmic proportions will certainly take place. Hundreds of millions of people will live out their lives in emptiness and despair. They will die and face certain judgment for their sins, eternally separated from God in hell. All we have to do to steal the fate of these billions is to stay where we are, in surroundings comfortable to us, shutting our ears to God's cry, Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? A young man once came up to General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Sir, the young man began, I don't know what to do with my life. I've never had a call. General Booth squared his broad shoulders and fixed his eyes on the young man. What? You've never had a call? boomed the bearded evangelist. You mean you've never heard the call? The Bible says in Mark 16, verse 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In John 15:16, the Lord says, I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit. I believe each of us is either a missionary or a mission field. We are either part of God's answer or part of his problem. We're either an asset or a liability to the kingdom of God. You might be asking yourself, how can I be a missionary? First, get a clear idea of what a missionary is. It is not just someone wearing a pith helmet standing under a tree preaching to natives. The word missionary means one who is sent. Jesus has said to every one of us, As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. John 20 verse 21. That means you are a missionary regardless of your geography. If you are living in the will of God, you are a missionary on the job wherever you work. If you're not there to be a missionary, you are like those Jesus described as putting their light under a bushel, which is a symbol of material abundance. You have been sent to your neighborhood as a missionary. You are not representing. If you are not re- representing Jesus Christ to those living on your block, you are like the one who put his candle under a bed which symbolizes ease and comfort. If you are still in school, God wants you to be his missionary right there in your classroom and on your campus. John 1, 6 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Take this verse and repeat it aloud to yourself right now, inserting your name. There was a woman sent Abigail. From... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) There was a man sent from God whose name was Abigail. The next step is to ask God if you are serving as a missionary in the place where he wants you. Don't just assume that you are to stay where you are. A few years ago, I became friends with a young Christian musician named Keith Green. I was impressed by by this intense young man. He seemed like a coiled spring full of energy and ready to hurl himself into any venture he believed in. He was also humble and full of question for me. As one who had ministered longer, he was so hungry to know more of God. In 1982, he and his wife Melody went on a trip onto the mission field and came home fired up with zeal for reaching the billions of lost people who are without Jesus. 
After their return, our two families got together at a friend's beach cottage in the California coast. It was a cool, overcast morning, and seagulls swooped outside the large windows overlooking the beach. Outside, our teenagers, Karen and David, played with Keith and Melody's kids, little three-year-old Josiah and Bethany, aged two. We adults sat inside on the floor, talking for hours about missions. Keith's intense desire was to do whatever he could to mobilize the thousands of young people who were coming to his con to his concerts. Then we began to pray earnestly. Keith was laying face down on the carpet, crying out for lost souls. We asked God for 100,000 young people to go out as missionaries from America, especially those who were 18 and 19 years of age. We committed ourselves to God and to one another to do whatever we could to further this goal. We planned to launch a special mission concert tour together in the fall. Two weeks after the time of our prayer beside the beach, Keith was dead, along with little Josiah, Bethany, and nine others in the crash of his small plane in Texas. I was in Japan on an evangelism outreach when I heard of his death, and I immediately remembered our prayer for young missionaries. As I met with several of our workers to pray, the scripture about a grain of wheat falling into the ground in order to die and spring forth in a harvest one hundred times greater than itself came into our minds. That fall, we went ahead with our missions concert, even though Keith had gone to be with Jesus. Many thousands of young people watched a video of one of his last concerts and heard his final appeal to give all and go. During that videotaped message, Keith said, it's not God's fault that the world isn't being one. It's not his will that any should perish. There's a little command in the Bible that says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We like to think that this was for the disciples, for the missionaries, for old ladies that can't find husbands that need to bury their troubles on the mission field, or for humanitarians. But real Christians... For real Christians that are so spiritual they can't stay in society, so they go overseas. The world isn't being won because we're not doing it. It's our fault. Nowhere on earth is the gospel as plentiful as it, he as it is in here in the United States. If you don't need a call, you don't need a call. You've already had one. If you stay in America, you better be able to say to God, You called me to stay home. If you don't have a definite call to stay here, you are called. Strong words, but are they true? There are only 250,000 Protestant and Catholic missionaries trying to reach those who have not yet heard the gospel. And yet, there are 1.2 million Avon representatives worldwide and over 750,000 Amway distributors. We have visited remote villages as the very first ones to carry in the gospel, and yet we have found that Coca-Cola and Singer sewing machines were there ahead of us. Is it God's will that so many haven't heard his word yet? Is this the way he has planned it? Did he call 94% of the full-time ministers to reach 9% of the world's population? Those in the English-speaking world. Or did he direct that 92% of all Christian finances for evangelism be spent to evangelize in the United States, where only 8% of the world's population lives, where many have already heard the gospel many times over. Even in North America, there are great gaping holes of spiritual darkness. Most Christians' efforts and finances are spent in the areas of greatest Christian population, leaving places like American inner cities with less gospel witnesses than many mission fields. 
If you see that something is very much out of balance, and I agree with my friend Keith, it's not God's plan for us to, for things to remain this way. We have to be willing to answer God's call and say, Here am I, Lord. Send me anywhere. We have to be willing to give up the right to stay at home. Abram gave up the right to stay in his own country. When God's call came to him, he had a, he had a good job in his father's business. God told him to pack up. He was going to a new country. Where, Lord, he asked, and God replied, I'll tell you on the way. What extraordinary faith this required of him. He had to say goodbye to his friends, and he couldn't even tell them where he was going. By the way, according to Jewish tradition, the profession of Abram's father was making idols. Like any son of that time, Abram must have worked in his father's trade, so Abram could have said to... to Sorry, Abram could have said no to God and kept on making idols. Are you saying no, or maybe later, to God's call? Search your heart to be sure that you are not in the idol-making business, too. You see, it's so easy to make idols of things like nice clothes, homes, good looks, comfort, ease, and pleasure. If we're not careful, these good gifts of God become the objects of our pursuit. Little gods. Paul Ratter was a big, strapping football player who lived in the early part of this century. He became an imposing figure on Wall Street, where he headed City Service Oil Company. Then he got saved and obeyed God's call to preach, finding a post as an assistant pastor in Pittsburgh. Paul Ratter would have been appalled if someone had told him there were still false gods in his life. One week, a visiting speaker came to his church. Paul took one look at the man, a missionary, and shook his head in disgust. First of all, the man was wearing a flimsy-looking suit of wrinkled brown silk. When he began to talk, it was in such a soft, delicate voice. He seemed a little frail, not like a real man at all, thought Rodder. As he spoke about his work in China, he often dabbled in the corners of his mouth with a handkerchief. Paul approached the man after the meeting and challenged him. Sir... Why are you so sissified? You call yourself a man of God, but look at the way you're dressed and the way you talk. I don't think you're much of a missionary. The man patiently explained, I'm sorry about this suit, but I have ministered in China for 25 years. When it was time to leave, all my western clothes had been worn out for years. The believers in my village pooled their resources to buy the silk to make me this suit, shirt, and tie. They didn't have a machine, so they stitched it by hand. He dabbed at his mouth again, and Ratter's disgust must have shown on his face, for the missionary continued. As for my voice, I did a lot of street preaching and was often beaten up. One time a gang took turns beating me, and a man jumped on my throat. My larynx was permanently damaged, and I no longer have control of my salivary glands. Embarrassed now, Ratter murmured an apology and hastened to find a place alone. He went down to the church basement, found a pile of coal, and stretched out on it, face down. He cried out to God, begging forgiveness for his attitude. He told the Lord he wanted to serve him like this man. From that day on, Paul Ratter was a man with a missionary heart. As a pastor and a leader in the Christian Missionary Alliance, he influenced many thousands of young men and women to give themselves for missions. Along with a willingness to go, Jesus wants you to be ready to be modeled and used in any way he needs your service. Jesus doesn't promise the comforts of home or the latest of fashion. 
His soldiers don't always have a soft bed, and sometimes they have no bed at all. In the mission I'm a part of, we have thousands of young people who are sleeping in hammocks or on air mattresses, trekking into dense jungles or mountainous regions for days or weeks to find hidden tribes, all for the purpose of introducing Jesus. One such young person, in Braulio Ribeiro, a bright, pert, 25-year-old like Braulia, doesn't appear... Braulia doesn't appear to be a courageous soldier, yet that's what she is. Braulia was raised in a middle-class Brazilian home, but since 1983, she has been working as a YWAM missionary among the Indian tribes of the Amazon. When Braulia and her team members leave their base camp and go upriver, it often takes many weeks of river navigation by boat, then small canoes, followed by hikes into the jungle to get to a tribe that no outsider has visited before. There, they stay without outside contact, while they work in the laborious task of learning to communicate with the Indians. For years, Brolia has existed on $50 a month missionary support. This is typical for our Brazilian YWAMers, and yet they manage to carry on an aggressive evangelism. While in the jungle away from their base camp, they eat whatever they can hunt or fish or whatever the Indians give them. This is often roasted monkey, rat, or snake meat. They sleep in the Indians' huts with them, knowing no privacy or modern comforts. The realities of the Amazon include leeches, humid, sticky days and nights, mosquitoes, poisonous snakes, and insects. Life-threatening danger is always a possibility in the Amazon, especially when you're approaching an Indian group for the first time. It isn't unusual for outsiders to be murdered by the fearful natives. Brolia and her team tried not to think about that when they went in to make their first visit to the Zirhriyaf tribe. They learned of this group's existence through other tribes and went to the area where they were told the Zirhriya could be found. Deep in the jungle, they were suddenly surrounded by fierce-looking men. The Indians' naked bodies were painted red with some sort of dye, and they were carrying bows and arrows, which the Waiwamers guessed to be poison-tipped. Berlia tried to gesture to them to assure them that they wanted to be their friends, but the Indians just stared at them, circling warily. Then they grabbed the workers, ripped off their clothes, and began smearing them with the same red dye. What were they going to do? Would they be killed? Berlia and the others were entirely at their mercy. One of the girls started to cry. After half an hour, the Indians decided to give them their clothes back. Then they understood that the Zuria were just trying to welcome them and make them a part of their tribe. They were brought into the village, and the mission of Jesus Christ to the Zuria of the Amazon was underway. In the Amazon, when an emergency happens, they are often isolated and have to tr- trust in their own wits and God's power to help them. On a subsequent visit to the Zuria, Berlia and a girl named Hulda were dropped off by a riverboat guide to trek in for 24 hours to find the village again. Their guide agreed to return them with messages and supplies in 35 days. But after one week, Berlia's friend Hulda was stricken with a severe attack of malaria. Their little supply of medicine was soon exhausted. They had no radio to call for help, and they had no radio to call for medical help. They'd never had the funds to buy one. After the girl got so weak that she couldn't get off her hammock for ten days, it became apparent to Berlia that Holda would die soon without help. 
Berlia and some of the Indians hiked a day and night to get back to the place on the river where their guide had left them. Berlia stood anxiously scanning the broad waters, hoping to see a boat. There was none. It was another two weeks before the river guide was due to return, but Berlia hoped against hope that someone would pass by. A day went by, and the Indians were impatient to return. Berlia stood on the riverbank with desperation, knowing her friend would die and not knowing what to do to help her. Then God spoke to her, Go back to the village. I'll take care of Hulda. Berlia hung up a hand-lettered sign behind the river, asking for help and leaving trail directions for how to find them. Then she returned to the village. Somehow, Hulda survived another two and a half weeks. Their guide returned at the appointed time, found Berlia's sign, and hiked into the village, carrying Hulda out in his arms. Still, it took them another seventeen days to navigate the rivers before they reached a small town in, with a doctor. Hulda had been sick for over forty days, but she recovered. This was just one adventure. Berlia recently married, and now she and her husband are continuing the ministry to the Zaria. Their goal is to translate the Bible into Zaria language. The workers on the Amazon are just a few of the thousands of young soldiers working around the world in incredible situations to get the gospel out. We also have teams living on the edge of a huge garbage dump in Manila, the Philippines, working among 10,000 squatters who live there. Others have been working in Brut Lamadon, in the border of Thailand and refugee camps, and in many, many other places of danger and hardship. Yet, if you were to meet these young people, you would not see martyrs or mystics. There are young people caught up with the thrill and privilege of what they're doing. They don't focus on the tropical heat nor the size of the insects, but on the excitement of seeing God use them to make a radical difference among people. Like Jesus, they endure suffering for the greater prize that is set before them. In the early part of this century, an ad appeared in a London newspaper. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. The ad was signed by Sir Ernest Shackleton, Antarctic explorer, and thousands responded to the call. I believe there were hundreds of thousands of young people who were just waiting for a rally call for a really challenging, dangerous job that requires them to give up everything. You may be one. The reward? Being a part of the climaxing event of all history, taking the gospel to every person on earth. Giving up the right to being comfortable at home is just one area of dedication to the Lord. You may be called upon to work with people who are not like you, who think differently than you do. In many ways, that's even harder. There's nothing wrong with going to the church where you feel most comfortable, where everyone believes as you do. But what happens when you move out in ministry and God calls you to work with someone else? Perhaps you have wide differences of opinions with them politically, or worse, doctrinally. What then? Aren't we all to strive to keep the faith pure? How can people who believe differently than we do? Aren't we supposed to guard against heresy and ap apostasy? I have come to the conviction that, of the, that the spirit behind an issue is more crucial than the differences in understanding. The spirit of heresy is adding to what is truth. The spirit of apostasy is taking from truth. How many of us understand all truth? 
Is there any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who would say, Yes, I know it all. Every Christian believes he's in the middle of the road doctrinally, but we can't all be perfect in our understanding. We're all growing in knowledge, so that means none of us know it all yet. Since truth is infinite and we are finite, all of us have a long way to go, a lot to learn. That means we could well have errors in our understanding at any moment in time. There are things we have heard since childhood that we have unconsciously added to the Word of God. There are also areas where we are not aware of in the realm of truth. So in a sense, we're talking away some truth. But this does not mean that we are heretics or apostates. Pride is the sin behind true heresy and apostasy, which leads to deliberately adding the truth of God's word or taking some of it away. We must be on our guard against this and seek instead to communicate in the spirit of truth, being led by the Holy Spirit, who has been given to guide us all into truth. I heard a Baptist minister on a cassette tape once speaking about this. He told how God told, called him to minister among Catholics in South America. He protested, But God, how can I work with them? I don't agree with them at all. And with all they do and believe? He said that to God, and God replied to him, I work with you, and I don't agree with all that you do and believe either. <laughs> a greater degree of humility is needed within the body of Christ if we ever move together in the spirit of unity and cooperate in the task of world evangelism. Each one of us needs to realize, I don't have exhaustive truth. I don't understand all things. You see, God could not entrust all truth to any one person or group or denomination. Even the Bible had to come forth from many writers over a long period of time and from a wide geographic area. Today, God has given pieces of the puzzle of Bible interpretation to many different teachers and groups. Only as we fit the pieces together, humbly admitting that we have something to learn from one another, will we begin to see the larger picture. I don't believe any of us will see the big picture in its entirety this side of heaven. So, what do we do in the meantime? Dr. D. G. Barnhouse was a respected Presbyterian theologian and the editor of Revelation the persecutor of Eternity magazine. Even though he had taught that Pentecostals were in error, he accepted an invitation late in his life to spend a week ministering among Pentecostals. Later, he said, I found that 95% of what I believe, 2% was totally contradictory, and 3% was in a hazy area. I decided that I could set aside my differences of 5% for any brother or sister in the Lord. The Word of God in Ephesians 4 tells us we need to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit until someday we all attain to the unity of the faith, verses 2-13. through 13. We must agree on the basics, the divinity of and lordship of Christ, the Bible as the Word of God, the work of the cross, the other main tenets of the faith. But where we disagree, we must leave it to God and keep our hearts right. Our responsibility is to do everything we can to maintain the spirit of unity, the very spirit of Jesus, John 17. Did Jesus say, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, because you have the same statement of doctrine? No. He said they would know he belonged to him because of our love for one another. You may be 
tribulationist, or an amulationist, or a dispensationalist, or a charismatic, or a Calvinist, or an Armenian. But we have fellowship in Jesus while the blood of Jesus is cleansing us from our sin. If your doctrinal statement is separating you from your followers of Jesus, from other followers of Jesus, I would go so far as to say it has become an idol that must fall. After all, any doctrinal statement is only man-made, unless you do like Brother Andrew, the author of God's Smuggler, does. When anyone writes him and asks him for a doctrinal statement, he mails them back a Bible. <laughs> we need one another, in very real ways. It goes beyond an attitude of heart. We need to pursue cooperation in practical ways if the body of Christ is going to fulfill the Great Commission. We must communicate and complement one another wherever possible, doing away with duplication of effort. We have a huge job to do, so we must find a flight pattern which doesn't collide with others in God's scheme of things. God's Spirit is being poured out on many people from diverse backgrounds who are not being united organizationally, but simply in Jesus. This is his process of blending. If you're a part of what he is doing today, you may have to give up some rights to doing things your way and the wrong of judging others. You may have to surrender the right to prove that you're right. During World War II, thousands of Christians suffered in Hitler's prisons and, and concentration camps. One was a German named Martin Niemöller. He was in solitary confinement, but one Christmas day, he brought out of he was brought out of his cell and thrown in with three other Christian prisoners. One was from the Salvation Army, one was a Pentecostal, and one was a Methodist. And Niemöller herself was from the Evangelical Church of Germany. The men found a discarded burnt door from a bombing, which they placed on the floor for a table. Using the black bread from their daily rations and some water, they celebrated the Lord's Supper together. Niemöller was reported, as we knelt together on that cold stone floor, our theological differences vanished. The body of Christ is not a prison. It is a fellowship of those who have found true liberty in Jesus Christ. As we walk in that liberty, we will find that he calls us to leave behind even the good things he has given us in order to find something greater. Servanthood to his great commission and unity with others who are different, but love him as we do. Is he calling you right now to walk in this kind of liberty?